children are dismissed to CFC Kids, if uh, they so choose. Um, and then in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to uh, God's Word, but let's, let's pray one more time, just asking the Lord to be with us as we uh, open our hearts to yield to what He says to us this morning. Father, we're grateful for Your Word and that we don't have to... Um, wonder what it is that you want, what you are like, what you say, what you think, what you expect of us. Uh, You've given it to us in your word, and so um, access to your word is not our problem. It's the ability to really receive it, accept it, obey it. And so we ask that you would give us the grace to receive it that way, Lord, not just as an academic exercise, Lord, but as spiritual transformation. Grant us that, we ask, by your Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're pushing off 1 Samuel for a week, and uh, I want to uh, bring your attention to a book of the Bible, a passage in particular within that book that is about new things, because we're entering a new year, and there's always something exciting about ringing in a new year. We're often hopeful about things that are new coming, like maybe some new movies that are coming out or some new books that are coming out by one of your favorite authors. Or maybe you're excited about the rapid pace of technological advancement. What are the new gizmos, gadgets, apps that might come out? In what ways is AI going to increase, maybe enhance your life? Uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, this, this further blurring between reality and things that are virtual. Or maybe you're excited about yourself. New year, new me, uh, your new diet, your new commitment to fitness, your commitment to reading so many books, your commitment to finish a degree, your commitment to find a better job, whatever it might be. You're excited that this year is going to bring something better. Uh, And we get excited about what's new, but uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, doesn't seem to share that excitement. As we'll see in a few minutes, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes basically says, there isn't anything new. There's nothing new to get excited about, not because new things aren't exciting, but because there aren't any new things. And so, and this can sound like a real bummer. A bummer of a sermon to start the year. I already got some comments about, ooh, Ecclesiastes, huh? You know, because if you're in the know and you've been around the book of Ecclesiastes, if you try to read through it in the past, it might be one of those times where you were, if you were ever tempted to chuck the Bible across the room, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes might be one of those times. And I think we have a hard time with the book of Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes because it can come off quite depressing, actually. The main theme of the book is this, if you're not familiar. The main theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is everything you thought had meaning in your life actually does not bring meaning to your life at all. That's the point of the book. Verse after verse, chapter after chapter, chapter, he's, he's stripping you of all that you thought had meaning and value in your life. His point is that all of it 
is meaningless. And he searches high, he searches low, he's wealthy, so he can afford to check out everything the world has to offer, including money, including education. He, he literally mentions books, book lovers, all meaningless. So Ecclesiastes is not popular for uh, bedtime reading. Um, we like new things. He makes the point that there is nothing new. And even though that sounds like a real downer, I get it. That sounds really depressing um, that everything in this world is meaningless. I propose to you that this is not a depressing book at all. I find it to be a hopeful book. I love Ecclesiastes. And I want to see what I can do to try to get you to see that. And maybe it becomes actually one of your favorite places to go in Scripture for the encouragement of your own soul and for evangelism. To to try to bring the gospel to other people, we can go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are great. Ecclesiastes is great too. And I hope we'll see why. But let's start at the top. We're mainly going to be in in chapter 3. But let's just start at the beginning, how this book begins. And the preacher, the author calls himself the preacher, the preacher argues that everything in this world is vain. So the first two verses of chapter 1, if you're there, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, first two verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, many think this is Solomon writing, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's another way of saying all is vain. Okay, vain. Now, that's an interesting word. Okay, some of you ladies might have a special setup in your house. You call it the vanity. Or maybe you don't like calling it that because that's a little too apropos uh, if you spend too much time in that magnified mirror where you put on your makeup and your jewelry and whatever else. That's one way to take the word vain or vanity that you're to focus on yourself or to focus on your accomplishments or your looks. That's one way to take it. Another way to take it, and you've heard it used this way, if somebody were to say something like, uh, once he lied about his resume, all his attempts to rescue his job uh, interview were in vain. In other words, for nothing. It means nothing. It means for naught. It means couldn't happen. It means it's empty, useless, futile. Some translate it as meaningless. Some translations say, you know, instead of the repetition of vanity, vanity, all is vanity, it's meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. The word literally means vapor. Vapor, vapor, everything's vapor or mist or pfft. Okay? Like a little, when it's cold outside and you see your breath for just a second and then it disappears, that's it. It's flimsy, it's futile, it's here and then it's gone. The Hebrew word, uh, Havel, is the same word used for Adam and Eve's son, Abel. And many point out the fact that he is aptly named because he was killed and his life uh, was shortened. So this is the key term in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity or meaningless or, or empty or futile. It's used five times in this verse and then in 29 other verses in Ecclesiastes, he keeps coming back to this idea. And like I said, he searches high, he searches low, he tries education, he tries promiscuity, all different things that he tries to find meaning in and all of it is vain. And that's his argument. 
And one of the ways that he argues that everything is vain, everything's empty, one of the ways to drive home this point is he says that newness, you know, looking for new things, expecting new things, ringing in the new year and celebrating what's new to come, that that actually is empty. And the reason why is because nothing is ever really new. Nothing is ever new, uh, not really. So we see this in chapter 1. He doesn't take long to get to it in verses 9 through 11. Check it out. Verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1. He says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. That's not meant to rhyme. It just is originally in Hebrew. Might help memorize it, though. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. So he's, he's inviting you to argue with him. Now, you said there's nothing new, but I can think of some new things. And he says, no, it has been already in the ages before us. So you think, teenager, the things you're facing, mom and dad can't understand, grandma and grandpa can't understand. Get over yourself. Because they went through it, and their parents went through it, and their parents went through it. You know, but they didn't have TikTok. It's the same thing. Just new ways of it happening, right? He says it's already been, not just a couple years ago, in the ages before us, as far back as you can think, everything's been the same. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Just like the teenager doesn't think that grandpa has anything relevant to say to their life, it's because they forget what grandpa actually went through. And guess what? One day, you're going to be a grandpa, maybe, or a grandma, and those little toddlers that turn into teenagers are going to think you are quite irrelevant because they don't think your experiences have anything to do with their experiences either. That's what he's saying. There is no remembrance of the past, of former things, and there's not going to be any remembrance of the things that are going to come later for those who come after us. So in a way, if you're reading verses 9 and 10 correctly, I think, what he's saying is you can kind of tell the future. You know what's going to come this year? What came last year? You know what's going to come next decade? What came last decade? It'll have new names. It'll have new faces. There'll be new flavors, new twists. But even the twists are all twists we've seen before in history. We're just not good students of history because we forget the former things is what he's saying so what will be is what already has been and what will be done is what already has been done now just as a reminder if this is sounding depressing i think it's good news actually and we're going to get there but even when new things come out i think in the mind of the preacher you've already seen these things already so i'll just give you like a cheap quick example all right I took a few minutes and just Googled new movies for 2024, all right? New movies that are coming out in 2024. Maybe some of you love movies. You like to see the new things that come out. And I want to say, I didn't do the actual math, all right? But I want to say about 75% of those movies that are coming out this year, coming, are sequels, prequels, and remakes. It's almost hilarious. We can't come up with anything new. How do we make money? Just redo something that everybody already likes or do the thing that happens before it or do the things that happened after it. We can't let those things go. 
And then probably the other 25% are just typical movies that you've already seen. A movie about war, a movie about monsters, a movie about romance or sports. We're still watching King Kong and Godzilla fight. That's coming out this year. We just can't. It's just the same stuff over and over again. Another superhero, same story. New inventions. Have you ever watched Shark Tank? Shark Tank has about five categories of stuff. It's either a beauty product, a fitness product, something to help you in your kitchen, or something for your pets. It's the same, it's the same thing. You can kind of guess as soon as the person walks out, ah, I think this is a tech product. All the categories are the same. Maybe a technological advancement. You know, we've, always been, um, we've, we've always been adjusting to new technological advancement. So no matter, no matter the the invention that comes out, the new thing, the new piece of tech. We've always been getting used to new tech. So, for instance, uh, it was very recently that we couldn't imagine having a telephone in your pocket. We couldn't ima- we're, we're still alive, those of us who... We couldn't imagine at a certain time in our lives... A phone. We were excited that we had a phone that wasn't attached to the wall that you can walk around in your house. And then we're like, this is dangerous. Now my kid could be in the bedroom on the phone, in the bedroom on the phone. You had to talk to that boyfriend or girlfriend in front of everybody, in front of grandma, because that curly cord was attached to the wall in the kitchen. (laughs) Now you can walk around and hide in a bedroom and talk. And then you blink your eyes and you don't have a phone in your pocket. You have a supercomputer in your pocket. A supercomputer. That used to take this entire church to run full of machines and stuff, right? And now it's in your pocket. It's in your kid's pocket. Access to anything in your kid's pocket. And we're like, ooh, this is scary stuff. This is scary stuff. It's not that scary. Now, we have to be careful, and we need to be wise with regard to tech advancement, but we don't have to be you know teeth chattering scared you know why because i think the preacher would say we've always dealt with the new thing that's scary the new thing that suddenly is going to destroy our kids the new thing that's going to forget it you know we're, we're th- this this whole world is going to be over because tech has finally outpaced man's ability to keep up with accountability and ethics with regard to technology but the preacher saying no we've seen it before and we'll always be talking about the new thing. We get new jobs, but they're the same grind. We meet new people, they're the same people. So why do we keep getting excited about new things to satisfy us? Because verse 11, we forget the former things. There's no remembrance of the former things, and the new thing that comes is not going to be remembered either. But what I want you to notice is the preacher isn't depressed about it. Right? The preacher, he just views it as a theological truth that nothing is ever really new because he connects it to the sovereignty of God. God is the one that puts things in check so that nothing is really new. Right? So he, he's, not, he's, not, he's about to show this, but he's not saying everything is really old news because we can never come up with anything. He actually pins it on God and says everything that is and everything that will be has already been, and then he gives the reason, because it's all under God's sovereign doing. So check out in chapter 3. So fast forward a little bit to chapter 3. 
And the main verses I want to show you are 14 and 15. But look at 15 first. Let's just give me permission for a second to take this out of order just briefly. Verse 15. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So you see how he's returning to that theme. Everything that was already is. Everything that is already was. Everything that is going to be already was. Right? So same point. This isn't a new point. But verse 14 gives us the reason. God is the reason in some sense. Verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Then he says, nothing's new. Do you see the connection? Why is nothing new? Because God is over time. God is over seasons. God is over the ins and outs of life, the ups and downs of life, the rolling of the calendar, the things that were, the things that will be, the things that are. God is all, he's over all of it. And what he has set endures. The patterns endure, the rhythms endure. Times of war, times of peace, times of sorrow, times of rejoicing, times to celebrate, celebrate birth, times to mourn death. These are the seasons and the rhythms of life that aren't ever new, but they cycle through over and over and over again. And rather than him being depressed, he goes, actually, this is underneath God's purview. He wants life to go in seasons. That's how he's designed it, and no one is going to disrupt that. No genius, let me just give you some comfort, some some theological comfort. No genius is going to come up with some invention that is so crazy, so dangerous, so scary that it's all over for mankind. You know what makes things all over for mankind? When Jesus rides his horse and comes and makes it over. That's when, not an invention. So is AI scary? Yes, we need to think about AI. Do I stay up late at night going, AI, that's it, we're done. No, why? Because I believe that God is sovereign over all things. And I don't think God is up there going, oh, they figured out the microchip. God does things that endure forever, verse 14. Nothing can be added to it. doesn't matter how genius you are, how smart you are, and nothing can be taken from it. What happens is what he allows to endure. God has done it. Why? Not so that people fear tech. Not so that people fear bombs. Not so that people feel uh, fear um, inventions but so that people fear before him. Now, this doesn't mean that God causes sin, that he, in over time, all the sinful things, that he causes the war, and he causes the sickness, he causes the diseases, he causes nuclear tragedy or whatever it is that we might look at. But it does mean that the cycles, the seasons, the times are all under God's sovereignty, all under his sovereign authority. Now, the only way you cannot find comfort in that is if, you, if you're not at peace with God. <laughs> but if you are at peace with God, then you're like, oh, okay. Whatever this new year brings, God's over it. Just like he was over it last year. Remember that thing that got me so scared, that caused me to doubt? And God somehow got me through it. He's the same God. 
and time has nothing on him. And then we have this difficult verse. This is, uh, this is a tough verse. The end of 14 is difficult, um, or the end of 15, rather. It says, uh, I'll just read the whole verse, end of uh, 15, that which is has, has already been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. See that there? End of 15, okay? Now, if you have a different translation, you might be like, that's wildly different than what I'm looking at. This gets translated pretty differently across English translations because the Hebrew is tough, the the syntax is difficult, and people argue about what it actually means. And I don't want to stand up here and give you 15 ways to take the verse uh, because I think there's enough evidence here to help us with it. When we look at this verse, uh, God seeks what has been driven away. It could be translated, uh, God seeks or God requires what has been pursued. And so people go, is is something being pursued? Is he requiring something or seeking something? What's happening in this verse? I think it's plausible that it could mean that what is being driven away is time as it hurries along. How do I know that? Well, context. (laughs) What did he just finish talking? What is he talking about? He's talking about time and seasons and what's new is not really new because it was already here and then it's gone and what's coming is going to be gone too. Right? It zips by your life. You're a teenager, you're a young adult. What? You're a grandparent. You know, it just flies, as we say. So as time is hurrying along, one translator translated that way, it hurries by. As that's happening, there's something in it that God is pursuing. There's something in it that God is after. There's something in that zipping by of seasons that God requires or wants or looks for. It's uh, a way of telling us that all the things that pass by are not lost forever. They're not just under his sovereignty, they're under his watch. And in his watch, he's looking for something in particular. Now, what is it that he's looking for in particular? Now, here's a, like I already mentioned, when you're stuck on a verse and you're like, I really don't know what that means, look at context, which means what just came before, what comes after, what's the point of the whole book, because it's probably not going to be something way off, all right? It probably is not, it doesn't mean, um, you know, uh, we should pray more, like, yeah, that, the Bible says that a lot, but there's nothing here about prayer. So how would it mean that? Probably has something to do with time. Probably has something to do with God's oversight of time. And then it probably has to do something with judgment. Why do I say that? A couple of reasons. First, remember in 14, it says that the reason why God is over things is so that people fear before him. Now, why would people fear God if he's over time? I think it's because you're accountable for what you do with it. Why else would I fear him? Everything that is is what was. Everything that was is what is. Everything that's coming already was, and that's going to be the thing in the past too. But God is over all of it so that people fear him. I think because we're held accountable to what we do in it. Here's another bit of evidence. The very next verses, if you're still there, verses 16 to 18. Check it out. What is it talking about? Moreover, I saw under the sun that, in, in, under the sun is a phrase in Ecclesiastes, I just mean everything in the world. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, 
God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time, there's time again, right? There is a time for every matter and for every work. So there's a time for this, there's a time for that. There's a time for this, there's a time for that. Seasons, rhythms, cycles. God is over all of it and in it, God is looking for what? Righteousness and wickedness and he is going to do what with it? Verse 17, judge it. I said in my heart, verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. God has set cycles, rhythms, seasons in life. You're going to cry tears of joy. You're going to cry tears of pain. You just are. You're going to have times of elation and times of hurt. You just are. You're going to make friends. You're going to lose friends. You're going to celebrate the birth of people. You're going to mourn the death of other people. But within all of these seasons, God is after something. He's pursuing something or requiring something, depending on how you translate it. But I think however you translate it, it all means the same thing. He's after something within those seasons. And what he's after is looking at wickedness or righteousness in the children of man, testing them testing them to see your butt beasts. And what I think he means by that is you're not over time. You can't control the next year. Things are just going to happen. Things are just going to come to you. You're not omnipotent like God is. You cannot control your calendar or the events that come in and out of your life. You can't control them. So what is God looking at? He's not looking for your control. He's looking for how you behave when things are out of your control. Righteousness or wickedness. And the final reason why I think this is about judgment is the final verses of the book, the climax of the book. So you can fast forward there to chapter 12, the last two verses of the entire book. He's wrapping it up and he's been driving it home. Look, everything you're looking for is meaningless. If you're looking for something new, that's definitely meaningless because nothing is ever new. And he reminds you of that point about God's judgment. That's really the the underlying point of the book. The end of the matter. All has been heard. I I searched everything out. What is the point? What's the point of life if books can't do it and education can't do it? If girls or boys in your life can't do it? Your marriage can't do it? Righteousness can't do it. Wickedness can't do it. The things that you do can't do it. The people you know can't do it. Everything that he covers in the book can't do it. So what is the point then of life? Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Mankind's responsibility, mankind's purpose is not inventions and technology and the new concert, the new movie, the new friend, Move from Illinois, like some state in the south is the promised land. That's just, if I could just get there, guess what your neighbors are going to be? Depraved, wicked people. I'm not saying it's wrong to move. I'm just saying if we're ch- the things that we chase, newness, retirement, that's going to be my new thing, or that next career, or that, that raise, or that job promotion. If I could just get that corner office, That change is going to bring something meaningful in my life. It will not. And if we're 
investing ourselves in those new things in that way, that's actually depressing, isn't it? That's the depressing part. So actually, this is not a depressing book. This is a book that rescues you from the source of your depression and putting you onto something enduring so that you see your life not as valueless, but the value in your life is not the things you're pursuing. The value in your life is fearing God and keeping his commandments. That is your duty. Another way of saying, that's your job. That's why you're here. That's why you breathe. It's to serve him. And all the things that you do, you do with him watching. As time zips by, he's after something. And what he's after is, what'd you do with that? What'd you do with that thing that I allowed to be brought into your life? And then verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Why should you be mindful of doing what God wants, of doing what, God, what pleases God, of understanding what his commandments are and then following through with those commandments? Why should you be mindful of that? Because there will come a time where the seasons stop, the cycles end, time stops zipping by, and you're brought before the Lord in judgment. So here's the point of the book, and I, at least the point of this message. Rather than seeking what's new, we should live in the rhythms of life. We should live within the seasons of time by focusing on rendering every deed unto God. That should be our focus. I'm not saying we can't make a New Year's resolution and try to eat better and try to live better. I'm not saying that. But there's a difference between coming up with a new diet and putting your hope and trust in it. That the thing that excites you about the new year is the new thing that can't bring meaning to your life. What I am saying is get excited about it if there's a way that you can glorify God in it. And you feel like you've been a lazy, idle glutton and that God doesn't like that and that this beautiful machine of a body that he gave you, you're just putting sludge into it and breaking it down and bringing it to an early end and you feel like maybe God doesn't like that, then let that excite you for a new diet. Do you see the difference? God is watching. Not your friends, not your boyfriend. God is the one that's sovereign over time and he's watching what we do within seasons. Now, as the final move for the sermon, it's going to take me a few minutes, but I think it's important. When we look at that last verse of the book of Ecclesiastes, most people, if I'm talking in a conversation, I I like to bring up, this is one of my favorite verses, I think, in the Bible, verse 14 especially. When you see that line, for God will bring every deed into judgment with with every secret thing, whether good or evil, what's your initial reaction? I, I find that most people's initial reaction is like, ooh, Because here's how we read it. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing too, whether good or evil. Right? But you can read it a different way. For God will bring every deed into judgment, even the secret things, whether good or evil. What's the difference? Well, there are evil things that are done in secret. That's for sure. In in fact, probably most of our evil things we do in secret, in the dark when no one's looking, because it helps dodge shame. But notice the positive aspect of it. 
whether good or evil. Judgment is not a negative term. Judgment just, there's good and there's evil. Which one did you do? You took a test and the teacher is now going to judge that test. And whether that judgment is good or evil is on you, man, right? It's not on the teacher. Now, sometimes you could turn something in and you know something bad is coming because you didn't study. Right? Time ran out. You were still on question number two. You know that's going to be bad. Others of you, you put in the time, you put in the work, you did the study guide, you, you, you understood the answers and the questions. You're not scared of the grade. You're excited for the grade to come so you can screenshot it and share it with your parents and maybe get something out of them. Right? You're excited about it because you know it's going to be a good judgment. Now, notice in verse 14, it's not saying only evil, even the good things, and even the good things done in secret. You ever do something that was really good, and you wish somebody saw that? You're tempted to Facebook it, so you can virtue signal that you did something good, but then you're like, mm, that kind of countermands the fact that it was good, and it just looks like I'm boasting of something good that I did, so uh, I guess nobody saw that. Somebody saw that. Somebody saw that, and judgment is coming. Not in the negative way, but in the, that was awesome. Your parents didn't recognize it, but I saw it. Your friend didn't see it, but I was watching, and that was awesome. It shouldn't be a depressing verse. It can be an exciting verse. So here's what I want to do real quickly, because I want to drive this home, just so nobody's like, man, why a depressing sermon for New Year's? Not a depressing sermon, not a depressing sermon, if you understand that judgment also brings reward. Um, he brings every deed into judgment, even the secret thing. So we're going to fly through, I think it's like 13 verses or something. We're going to put them on the screen. I just want to show you that there's not just bad judgment, but there's reward. There's reward for the things that we do in the times and in the seasons that God is watching. First one, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So you see, he's channeling the last verse of Ecclesiastes. There's not just evil before the throne, but good too. That God sees it. He notices it. And the positive is included here too in Revelation 22. You might remember this when we were wrapping up the book of Revelation. Revelation 22, scary book, right? There's dragons and there's demons and there's judgment and there's a white throne and Jesus is riding a white horse, he's carrying a sword. But look, verse 11, let the evildoers still do evil and, let, and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. In other words, there's these two groups, the wicked and the righteous like Ecclesiastes talks about. And then verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, Jesus bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Does that sound negative? But he just gave you the positive. Let the righteous still do right, let the holy still be holy, and then he's going to bring recompense to repay each one for the holy things. Repay each one for the righteous things. Unless what you were doing were filthy things, then you'll get repaid for that too. I'm not saying there is not negative judgment. I'm just saying we just think of judgment as only negative, but it's also positive. It's like if, you know, uh, well, I'm not going to use that. Let, let, me, let me push forward. But verse 14, notice, he says, he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Do you find that interesting? 
I'm over all time. Seasons come and go. I'm in the front of it. I'm in the back of it. I'm over it. Seasons don't affect me. But you know what I'm watching? I'm watching my recompense and who I'm going to repay for their holiness. And recompense is the same word that's translated in all these other verses I'm showing you as reward. So it's the same. Recompense and reward is the same word in uh, the Greek. And reward is promised over and over in the New Testament. Let's move faster through these. Matthew 5, several of these in Matthew 5 and 6. You remember the Sermon on the Mount in 11 and 12. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. He says, Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's the time link again. You think persecution is new? You think people hating you is new? People have always been hated for my name. Just take the season on the chin and recognize that in the future, when time is finally stopped and the seasons of persecutions are over, your reward is going to be great. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, like on Facebook or whatever, right? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. See, the secret things, the secret things that are good, God catches that and he rewards you for it. Matthew 6, 3 to 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 6. He's going through examples. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That doesn't mean we can't come and gather for prayer. Just so you know, this is not a verse that, you know, you you say, I don't want to go to prayer meetings because it says go in the closet. He's talking about the pharisaical style of the robes and the standing on the corner for everybody to hear. Oh, Lord, I'm praying this long flowery prayer in front of everybody. Looking out out of one eye just to see who's hearing you pray this amazing prayer. He's like, no, just pray in secret. And the Father will reward you for that because you're not doing it for anybody but him. Matthew 6, 17 to 18, same chapter. Fasting, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, some of us might go a little overboard. We're we're so secretive about our fasting, we won't tell anybody And we're really nervous to tell anybody because we're so nervous that God is going to be upset that we're actually fasting. He's talking about people that they have the bags under their eyes. They they come into church. They're dragging their feet. They want you to ask, long night? No, I haven't eaten in 30 days. Huh? Keep me in mind for the next elder nomination. Um, That kind of stuff, right? Do it in secret, and the Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Matthew 10. 41 to 42. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. This this is hospitality toward God's ministers or or godly people in your life. And you're not showing them hospitality because you think you're going to get something out of them. You're showing them hospitality just for the fact that it's a prophet, just for the fact that it's somebody who's righteous, just for the fact that it's somebody who's godly. 
and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, not for any other reason, not because people are watching, just because this person is a disciple, you help them, you comfort them, you brought them comfort in their time of distress, usually persecution. Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Are you getting the gist that Jesus is into giving rewards? He loves handing out rewards. And he's emphasizing over and over, Luke 6, 22 to 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, actually, and leap for joy. Why? For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Luke 6, 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. 1 Corinthians 3.14. Here's a short one. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he's talking about building a church, typically ministers in this particular context, he will receive a reward. That's interesting. Should that motivate us? That actually is part of the birth of the name of Five Stone, Right, the ministry that Gordon leads is we build things on the right foundation, not for the glory of man and not to collect nickels and noses, but for God to watch and go, that is valuable. And when he does that, in the end, those ministers who may not have been famous in man's sight are given reward in God's judgment. Hebrews 11 verse 6 Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And what is God like? He rewards those who seek him. That should be encouraging to you. Last one, Revelation eleven eighteen. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. Ooh, that sounds scary, but comma, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and saints, you know who the saints are? You, believer. You. And those who fear your name, both small and great. You're like, I didn't do a lot of great things. There's reward for you. Because he saw that small thing that you did, and especially those things you did in secret. For those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. All these use that same word for reward, misthos, which is, Wages or salary, recompense. It could be punishment, but it's paying someone for a service. So how is all this depressing sounding stuff actually not supposed to be depressing? It's because it rescues you from what can't give you purpose. It's like if you know somebody who's been donating to a charity, but you found out that that charity is actually fake. And all these years they're giving all this money to this charity that's actually not a charity, and the money's just going into some wacky dude's pocket and you give them the news hey that's not a charity actually you're wasting your money is that depressing or is that good news I guess it depends on how you look at it but you could look at it as what's really good news that I've been informed to not do that anymore it's good news that I can now put that money in something that's actually meaningful instead of throwing it down a hole into something that's totally empty and useless. And you see, the book of Ecclesiastes is that kind of presentation of the good news. Look at all the stuff that you, look at all these holes that you keep dumping all your money into, all your investment into, all your hope and, 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 and uh, future longings into, and that it can't actually return anything to you. 
Instead, why don't you shift your focus into the one thing that is meaningful, which is doing all the things that you do in this life for God, with God as your audience, even the secret things, knowing that it's never for nothing. Those secret little things are never for nothing when God sees it and rewards you for it. I think this book is full of hope because it strips you of the dead weight of all the things that are lacking in meaning and in purpose, and it connects you to the one source of hope that we have. Final thing I want to say. We end up with a couple of questions here that have to be asked, and they're easy. They're not hard. You probably know the answers already, but here are two questions that I think are important. The first one is, I've done both good and bad, so what's it going to be? Right? I mean, Ecclesiastes talks like you got people on there's this side and that side. And Jesus talks like that too. You got sheep and you got goats. People on the right, people on the left. And there's going to be a great dividing in the end. There's the wicked and the righteous, and you're one or the other. We saw that in the book of Revelation. You're one or the other. But if I've done good things and bad things and it's a mixed bag, which one am I? That's the first question. The second question is even the good things I've done, Scripture tells us they're filthy rags before God. Because they're, even the good things I do are mixed. Isn't it, isn't it very difficult? I mean, even if I'm going to do something good and I intentionally do it in secret, and the reason why I'm doing it in secret is so that I don't lose my reward, I'm focused on reward and I'm not doing it for the glory of God, which one is it? Am I wicked because I want reward? Or how, does that, how does that happen? If I do something and it had to be in public because the person broken down is on the side of the road and as I'm helping them fix their tire on the side of the road, people are zipping by and they're like, you're awesome. Oh, let me stop helping you because I'm losing my reward. We have this conflict of emotions and feelings in us constantly because we're not perfect yet. And we do have these old ways of thinking nagging at us all the time so that even the good things we're doing are kind of tainted by a self-serving attitude. And so I want to preach a sermon that is good, a good sermon for your benefit and for God's glory. But it's hard to get out of my heart and mind the desire to preach something good because I want to do something good. Even the things that we do that are as sanctified and holy as preaching a sermon, leading a small group, serving as an elder, serving as a deacon, the the ministry that you lead, that you participate in, singing up here, playing up here, It's hard to do them with pure intentions. So how can I I get out of the dilemma of the fact that I have good and bad in me? And how can I get out of the dilemma that even the good things in me are mixed and tainted? And the answer is in Christ. In Christ, there's no condemnation. So the bad things aren't counted against you. And so you don't end up in a middle place of mixed. There's righteous people over here Condemn people over here, I'm like half. I need purgatory to kind of burn it off. It's a made-up doctrine. There is no purgatory in Scripture. There's the righteous and there's the wicked. So how does anybody end up in the righteous column when none of us are perfectly righteous? We are given and imputed to us is Christ's righteousness. If his righteousness is perfect, then you're in the righteous category if you are in Christ. And the things that we do that are mixed, they don't feel like they were pure, God rewards us for those things anyway. Because you wouldn't even be trying to do those things if it weren't for Christ in you. So in Christ, there's no condemnation. And in Christ, you're a new creation. And God is producing godliness in you that Christ finds rewardable. 
Does that blow your mind? Anything good that I do is because God made me a new creation and in Christ, he's the one that did it anyway. And then he rewards me for it anyway. I find it incredible. It's like when you're given a gift on your birthday, do you say thank you? Just because the gift was occasioned by your birthday doesn't mean it doesn't count as a gift. Almost a kind of a reward. Thanks for being born. Thanks for being you. Here's a gift. Now you knew a gift was coming. You'd probably be offended if the gift wasn't coming. It's your birthday after all. But just because it's, let's be honest, an obligation for that person to give you a gift, that doesn't mean you don't thank them for it. You still thank them even though they had to give it. It celebrates your birth. And similarly, just because Christ's work in us is the occasion for our reward doesn't mean we don't get reward. Besides, why should you get gifts for being born anyway, right? You didn't birth you. On your birthday, gifts should be given to your mother. (laughs) All our rewards should be Christ's. He's the one that did all the work. He's the one that birthed you. You didn't birth you. Christ birthed you. So he should get all the reward. He should get all the boasting rights, right? But it's called grace. And actually the word in Greek for grace is the same word for gift. He rewards you, not because you deserved it, but because he's doing things in you that are rewardable. And so to think that he wouldn't reward me is to think that he's not doing anything rewardable in my life. But he is because he's God and he's Christ and he's amazing. So rather than seeking what's new, we should live in the rhythms and in the seasons of life by focusing everything we do, everything we think, focusing it as uh, something that we do unto God, with God as the audience. And in Christ, Ecclesiastes is a book of hope. I hope you read it. I hope you underline it, understand it, use it to minister to others who are placing hope in the wrong things. The book of Ecclesiastes reminds us to not invest our excitement and our longing and our sense of purpose in the wrong things. It's not because they're bad things, okay? It's because in of themselves, they are empty things. The only way they can have any relevance to meaning at all is if we do them as ways to glorify God. So let's enter this new year with all of our plans and all our renewals, but with God as the audience in mind and allow that to give us the excitement that we should have in living in every time and in every season in ways that glorify him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the great encouragement that whatever we encounter in this life, you are watching. Uh, They are not in our lives by accident. You are wholly sovereign. You are over everything. And so we can live in every moment and every difficult time, every easy time with you as our audience and looking forward to a time where you will open up a humongous bag of reward and handing them out, Lord, including those crowns that one day we will toss before Christ knowing that even our rewards, even our crowns are gifts from him. You get all of the glory and all of the credit and all of the praise. And so now we sing with those hearts, hearts that are reminded that you are the focus of every boasting right in this life. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me?